Hey, New Hope Church, hope you are doing well on this July 4th weekend, and I hope that uh, you enjoyed the 4th of July celebrating with friends and family and celebrating this great country. I know that we have our issues, we always have, but let me tell you something, there is nothing quite like America, the land of the free, and I am so grateful for those who have served our country. In fact, this morning, when I was um, just thinking about all of this and spending some time in the Word, I thought of 2 Chronicles 7:14. You've probably heard this verse, but it's a great one for us as we think about America. The Bible says this, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, seek my face and pray, then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. Will you place that verse to memory and pray for our country again? It's 2 Chronicles 7, 14. Well, as you can tell, I am at the lake and uh, church, I don't know if you've picked up on this, but we have an incredible summer unfolding. And I've got a brother coming up right behind me. I guess he's doing a little fishing, that's cool. Um, We have an incredible summer unfolding. Just about a month ago, we saw somewhere around 60, 66 people except Christ. A couple weeks ago, we sent a missions trip to Guatemala. Uh, We had a blast-off camp where 37 kids accepted Christ. And last weekend, we had a Compassion Sunday where 393 children were sponsored and rescued from poverty in Jesus' name because of your heart and your generosity and you hope. And I just want you to know I am so stinking proud of you and so thankful that God uses us to rescue children. And I realize that some of you might not have been here last week. Or you might have been here and you were struggling and wrestling and you just couldn't, you couldn't commit to giving a little more than a dollar a day to rescue children from poverty. And as a result, we decided to have everything back up again this weekend at all of our campus locations. 393 were sponsored last week. Surely we could sponsor seven more and go over the 400 mark. I think we could actually sponsor 107 more and actually go over the 500 mark. So at all of our campuses, outside in the lobby or the rotunda, we have packets available for you to sponsor a child or for some of you to sponsor more children. Let me just tell you, I'm praying for you today. I know God is going to move mightily. I know he has already moved mightily in worship and he's about to move mightily through the word because we have the unbelievable privilege of hearing from my friend, a great man of God who is no stranger to new hope. I am talking about Pastor Derek Idol. Let me tell you about this guy. He loves ministry and he loves his family. He's married to Megan and they have two children. He is the director of the Center of Youth Ministry at Liberty University. He is a professor there as well. And before that, he's done like 17 years of student ministry at my good friend's church, 12 Stone in Atlanta, where he led one of the largest (laughs) student ministries in the nation. The brother can preach, and uh, he is incredibly intelligent and articulate. And I'm telling you, you are in for an amazing treat today. So New Hope, grab those teaching notes, get your Bible open on your iPad or your phone or, or old school Bible and do what you do. Give honor 
where honor is due. And let's welcome Pastor Derek Idle to the New Hope stage today. Here we go now. What's up, church? How y'all doing this morning? Man, I'm so excited to be here. New Hope is one of my favorite places in the world to preach. And uh, this is the third opportunity I've had to come and share the word with, uh, with your, your amazing church. And I love Benji. And what an opportunity that you guys have in this community to impact the way that you are. And not just in this community, but around the world. Like, I'm just hearing the praise report coming from that video and what God is doing through your church. And it is amazing. Now, we've been in this series on shoes, and we're looking at different types of shoes to get into, to uh, uh, kind of to see different encounters that people had with Jesus, and, and we looked at people like a Roman centurion and the Roman centurion's boots, and, and today, we're going to actually look at a pair of slippers, a pair of slippers, and we're going to get into our slippers today. Now, let me tell you something about slippers. I like slippers. All right, not pink slippers. I don't own any pink slippers, just to be clear. You're like, man, this guy's wearing these. Uh, I like slippers. And uh, when I think of slippers, I think of like the morning time, sitting at the kitchen table, drinking a cup of coffee. Mm, I love coffee. Thank you, Lord, for coffee. And I think of, you know, late at night, you're tired, you're ready to go to bed. You know, I think of putting on my slippers, going in the bedroom, and I'm telling you, exciting stuff happens in the bedroom, all right? I'm talking about sleep, church. Come on now. All right, get your mind out of the gutter. We're in church this morning. But there's also some scandalous stuff that happens in the bedroom as well when it's outside the plans and purposes of God. And today, we're gonna look at an encounter with someone who had an encounter with Jesus who basically was just in their slippers, now, before we get into that story and before we set up the context of that story, I wanna kinda get your mind around this thought today. And here's the thought, sort of a bottom line, if you will, for the message, and it is this. Our brokenness helps us identify with the brokenness of others. Our brokenness helps us identify with the brokenness of others. In fact, look at your neighbor and say, you broke. Look at your other neighbor and say, not as broke as you. <laughs> so, some wives and husbands, they got real happy at that moment, right? I saw that look in your eye when you looked at your husband and said, not as broke as you, all right? There's some conviction with that, right? You broke. And listen, listen, this is what the scripture would teach us. The scripture would teach us that we're all broken. The Bible says in Romans chapter three that there's no one righteous, not even one. The Bible would teach us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That you have brokenness, that I have brokenness, that we all have brokenness. And this brokenness is rooted in the fact that we were born with a sin nature that has been carried all the way since the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter three. And this sin nature that we carry is a big deal because sometimes when we think of sin, we just think about like the things that people do, the activity of their life. But what we see is, is that the activity of our life and the sin that we commit, that we participate in, is a result of a brokenness within the identity of our life, who we are. So in other words, how we live is affected by who we are and who we are at our core. And what's amazing is, is that God offers a way for us to be healed from our brokenness, to bring us out of that brokenness, 
And when you become a part of the family of God and you repent of your sin and you put your trust and faith in Jesus and you're now a part of the family of God and he calls you his sons and his daughters, what's amazing about that is is that the penalty of that sin is erased and we are now placed in this amazing relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Lord Jesus. And what I love about that then is that now when God looks at us, he no longer sees us in our brokenness, but he sees us in his son's righteousness. But sometimes what happens in the church is, is that we begin over time, as God begins to mature us, as God begins to grow us up in our faith, as God begins to work things out in our salvation, and we begin to mature, and as we begin to become more sanctified, to use sort of a a, a biblical theological term, and as we begin to grow and become more sanctified and mature in our faith, we can get to this place sometimes where we feel like, all right, man, like, like I've gotten some victory over some stuff in my life. Like that thing that used to trip me up five years ago, that doesn't trip me up anymore. And that place I was at a year ago, I'm not at that place anymore because God has given me victory and God has given me healing and God is restoring things that are broken and, and God's using me for his redemptive purposes. But then what happens sometimes is that we begin to get into this place of thinking that, man, you know what? I think I have something to do with this. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty strong. Like, my willpower, amazing. <laughs> and then we start looking at other people over time and we start going, well, man, if you would just do this. Well, if you would just change that, if you would just be more disciplined. And we begin to lose touch with the brokenness that was a part of our life before Christ. And it leads us to this place of self-righteousness. That all of a sudden, like, I had something to do with this. Like, it ain't God that's been working this out in me. It's me that's been working this out in me. And self-righteousness leads to being judgmental, and judgmental leads to being a hypocrite. And I don't think there's very many things that are more repulsive to people that are outside of the walls of the church than being self-righteous, judgmental, and hypocritical. And so we're confronted with this reality that we're broke. That we're broken. Now, I don't know, how many of you guys have ever broken anything before? A bone, you broke your arm, your nose, your, you know, uh, how many, how about this? How many, anybody ever had a broken heart before? Say, oh, right. <laughs> yeah, you know, we've all broken things before, had a broken heart or, or, or something in, in that nature. And <clears throat> when things are broken, what we know about that is, is that they're not whole. When things are broken, they're not whole. In fact, I love sports. And I love things like the Olympics. And, uh, and so I was watching the Olympics a couple years ago and there was a gymnast from France who was doing this gymnastics routine off the vault and uh, he landed in kind of a funky way and when he did, his leg got broke. Now I'm gonna put the picture on the screen and I'm just gonna tell you, if you get queasy, this is probably not the picture for you, but I wanna show you a point. I wanna prove a point out of this. I want you to check this out. So we're gonna put it up on the screen. Here it is, the French gymnast. <coughs> Oh, man. It is so brutal, right? Oh. And when you look at that, you're like, I don't, I don't want to look at it. Like, it's, it's grotesque. Like, it's, it's disgusting. Like, it's, like, 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 just take it down, right? Like, just take it down, right? Right? I mean, it's gross, right? And, and listen, listen. This is how sin is in our life to God, Right? When God looks at our brokenness, it's like, man, like, like I can't, like, like it's, like I can't look upon that. Like that can't be in my presence. Like that, like that is not like of 
me. That is not how I designed you. I designed you with a different purpose in mind. Now, can we agree that this guy's leg is not whole? Like it's in two parts. Like he's not gonna be at the Olympic after party, like, you know, breaking it down, you know what I'm saying? Sorry for that. <laughs> right? He's just not. He's not gonna be there doing that. Right? Like he's going to the hospital. He's laying there on the ground. Now, I just want you to imagine for a minute. Just imagine if this dude's laying on the ground, leg cocked over to the side, right? And all of these people start running over him, like his coaches and people that like really care about him because I'm not gonna help him. That's good. I ain't gonna like forget that. If dude's laying on the ground and his leg's all crooked. Now, can you imagine if that dude just steps up and he stands up and he starts hopping around <laughs> and his coaches, his wife, they're like, dude, what are you doing, man? Like, like lay down. Like, you need to lay down. Like, like, what, like what's going on, man? Like, 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 your, like your leg, like look at your leg. Like it's nasty, it's broken. Now, what if he was like, I'm good, man. What are you talking about? I'm fine. I'm good, man. Everything's good. Bro, you ain't good. Like, you gotta get help. Nah, man, I'm good. Bro, you be you. Let me be me. I will be me. If I want to walk around like this, you let me walk around like this. Right? Now, we would say that's absurd, that's crazy, that's silly. But that is exactly how people in our culture and in our world walk around today. They're walking around in their brokenness. They're not whole. And sin has broken their identity. It's broken, therefore, their activity and how they live their life. And they're walking around like this and Jesus is going, listen, brother, listen, sister, lay down. Let me help you. I can help you. I can bring healing. I can make you whole again. And we live in this culture that says this. We live in this culture that says, hey, 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 you just need to find acceptance for your brokenness. And I'm here to tell you, church, it does not matter what kind of sin, what kind of trap that the enemy would put before you, that if you want acceptance in the culture of this world for the sin that you're committing, you can find it. Church, if you wanted to rape women and decapitate people, you, there's organizations you can join today that will not only accept you, but they would celebrate you and even pay you to do it. If we are looking for acceptance for our brokenness in this world, you can find it. But the message of the scripture is that Jesus came, died on the cross for our sins. He was buried. He rose again on the third day, giving us victory over sin and death so that we can be made whole in a relationship with him. And that's what he offers us. But this is the hope that we have to bring to the world. And we have to show the world that, hey, listen, listen, listen. My admission of being a Christian is not that I have it all together. My admission of being a Christian is that I'm broken and that I'm in need of a savior. And because of my brokenness, I'm not gonna dwell on that because I know how Jesus sees me now, but I know where I was in my brokenness and I can identify with your brokenness. And so I wanna come alongside you and I wanna share this love of Christ so that you can get healing as well so you don't have to keep walking around like this all the time, faking it and pretending like you can make it through life all on your own. Yeah. It's our brokenness. <coughs> and so if you got your Bibles, you can open up to John Chapter 7, verses 53. 
Now, one of the things that is really powerful about this passage uh, that, that we're gonna look at here in a second, and what we see when this brokenness conversation is, we see that Jesus has this incredible heart for broken people. He just does. I mean, he's ostracized by the religious because he's always spending time with sinners and people that society just says, man, those people, they're just too broken. And Jesus says, hey, listen, it is not the healthy that need a doctor. It is the sick that need a doctor. And I'm coming to bring some healing. What I love about New Hope Church is the reach of New Hope Church and the people who come here and you have all types of stories, stories of brokenness and stories of, stories of healings. And the truth is, is that churches that are without the broken, they're the churches that are broken, right? And when we get to this story in John chapter seven, verses uh, 53, we're gonna put it up on the screen here in a moment, but before we do, uh, and I'm gonna just kind of break down the verse, I wanna set up this story for you and give you a little bit uh, um, of sort of a disclaimer to this verse. In the New Testament, there are two passages of scripture that are uniquely set apart from all other passages in the New Testament. The end of the book of Mark and John chapter seven, verses 53 to John chapter eight, verses 11. And the reason that these verses are set apart, in fact, if you're looking in your Bibles now, you'll see a little phrase that'll say something to the effect of, this section is not found in the earliest manuscripts. And in some of your Bibles, it'll actually be italicized. So I'm gonna address that real quick in like two minutes just to kind of give you a little bit of the background of what's going on in this passage. The New Testament was written in the Greek language and there is more manuscript evidence to back up the New Testament than any other document in the history of the world in particularly from the antiquities period. And what's powerful about the manuscript evidence is that we have copies of copies of copies of these manuscripts that corroborate what is happening in the scripture so that when people who do textual criticism, people who write scripture, people who are translating from the original Greek into the English so that we can read what the scripture is actually teaching, they go back to these early documents and they translate from that into the English. Now, in 1,495 of these copies and manuscripts, we see John chapter seven, verses 53, through John chapter eight, verses 11. <coughs> but in 267 of these manuscripts, it's actually missing from that particular, uh, it's missing from those manuscripts. Now, what's interesting about that as well, though, is that these 267 manuscripts are the earliest and considered the most important. So scholars have all types of conversations around this, debate on this. I could literally spend the whole time this morning breaking down everything that scholars say and teach about this. But the general conclusion and consensus is, is that this is actually inspired text, that it is actually scripture that should be uh, in, in, uh, in, in the New Testament. In fact, we see at the end of the book of John, John saying, closes sort of the gospel of John with this, with this, uh, with this uh, saying, I'll put it up on the screen, he says this. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. In other words, he's saying, listen, Jesus did so many things that if you wrote them all down, piled up all the books in all the world, the world couldn't even contain all the things that Jesus did. In addition, we see that the early church fathers taught this passage and preached from it extensively as inspired text. So today, we're going to treat it as inspired text because it also 
does not have any theological uh, inaccuracies. It doesn't have anything that is sort of off base from other stories that we see from Jesus in this time. But I wanna give you that caveat to sort of lay out what's going on. And so, <coughs> and so we're gonna jump in uh, uh, here to the text. And, uh, and he opens up in uh, verse uh, 53 into uh, in verse one. I'll just kind of read this. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives at dawn, he appeared in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and they sat down to teach them. So here's the scene. This is during the time called Sukkot, which is also known as the Festival of Tabernacles or the Festival of Tents or the Festival of Booths. All of that means basically is that every single year, every Jewish man, every Jewish woman would uh, pilgrimage to Jerusalem and they would set up tents all over Jerusalem, all around the temple, and they would literally for a week have this massive celebration. It's after the harvest, so they have money in their pockets. I mean, you have to picture this like, like 4th of July with like Easter kind of combination because there was the fun celebration side, but then there was also the spiritual side of this particular celebration. So Jerusalem was, would swell with all of these people pouring in to the city and into the temple. And every day, Jesus is in the temple and he's teaching these people. And he's loving on them and he's teaching and he's teaching. And all of these people are gathering around to hear Jesus teach. And about halfway through the week, this crazy, wild scene unfolds. The religious leaders know that Jesus is teaching in the temple and they try to use this opportunity to trap, to trick Jesus. And let's, let's keep going. Let me show you what he says. He says this. It says, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, these religious leaders, they brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, can't you just hear the condescending, hey, teacher, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery. She's caught in the very act of adultery. Wait a minute, what? She's caught in the act of adultery? I mean, adultery is something that's done in private. It's done in secret. It's done in the hidden place. What do you mean she was caught in the act? And, 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 and how did you guys, the religious guy, how did you guys catch her? Right? What are you guys doing? Sounds like this woman was set up. Because then that brings us to the other confusing part of this story. Where's the guy? Where's the guy? I imagine Jesus could say back to him, hey, but you know that in the Mosaic law, which you're about to quote to me to try to trap me, it says that if a man or a woman are caught in adultery, a man and a woman, they both are to be brought before. And the punishment was death. Intense. Right? There was no like, he keeps cheating on me, she keeps cheating on me. Like it was one and done. Before college basketball made it popular, adultery, one and done, right? And there's things you can do alone, right? You can go ride a bike, you can go for a run, you can watch TV, but adultery's not one of them. So where is this guy at? And there's this trap that's happening. They're, they're setting up this scene and, uh, and, and, there's, and, 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 it, and it gets deep, it gets deep. And so what I wanna do here for a moment is I want you to kind of picture this scene mapped out. This woman is brought before Jesus 
And it says that they made her stand before the group. I want us to get in this, this woman's slippers just for a moment. This woman, we don't know her name, but we know that she's identified and known as the adulterous woman. Now, just a side note, we live in a world that likes to define us by our sin, define us by our failures, define us by the things in our life that are not pleasant. Now, let's get into this woman's slippers. I want you to imagine for a minute that it's Easter Sunday morning, the church has swollen with membership, right? There's people everywhere. Every chair is full, standing room only. There's overflow in the lobby. And the pastor's up preaching, teaching the people in the middle of the service. And you're brought out by angry mob of religious accusers. And they throw you down on this stage in front of everybody wearing nothing but your slippers. Humiliated. And the accusers are shouting out the worst sin that you have ever committed in your life. And they have evidence. Here's the search history. Here's the ledger from that business deal. Here's the video of that argument you had with your spouse. Here's this, here's this, here's this. Can you believe this person? Now, I know this. If I ask some of you in this room to come up here on the stage right now, just interrupted the service and say, come up here and pray, you would have a heart attack, all right? You're like, praying for all these people? What are you talking about? Let alone, can you imagine being on this stage wearing nothing but a pair of slippers and having your biggest failure sin exposed in front of everyone? Think of the humiliation, the shame. This is what this woman is experiencing in this moment. I'm not asking you to empathize with her sin. I'm asking you to empathize with the scene. This is, this is an intense, intense scenario that's happening right here in the middle of this church service on Sunday morning. And here's this woman completely exposed. And then verse five, it says this. They're talking, the religious leaders, they said, in the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say, talking to Jesus? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Now, let me tell you something. This is a brilliant and layered attack on Jesus. Here's why. Because <coughs> what are they celebrating? They're celebrating the festival of tabernacles or the festival of tents which goes all the way back to the book of Exodus where the people wandered in the wilderness and they lived in tents during this time. And the leader of these men and women, the Israelites, was a guy by the name of Moses. Moses also wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, also known as the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, also considered the main scriptures and source of scripture of all of the Bible to these people. So they're coming in and they're saying, hey, 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 you know Moses, the one we're here all celebrating and what happened during that time? And you know what he said in the Torah, the first five books? You know what he said in Deuteronomy 22? So what do you think we should do with this woman, Jesus? Now Jesus is called in a trap because if Jesus says, don't stone this woman, which is what the Mosaic law taught. 
then the crowd that is around, that is listening and hearing him teach, are gonna, are, he's gonna lose all credibility with them because they're gonna be like, wait a minute, are you greater than Moses? What are you talking about? Do you get to just pick and choose what scripture that you're gonna use? But on the flip side, if Jesus says stone her, they have him trapped as well. Because the Roman law, which the, these, uh, the, in the first century, the Romans were sort of the, the, uh, you know, the superpower over the world and the Jewish people were underneath the authority of the Roman government. Roman law stated that you could not execute someone for a religious purpose. It's why when Jesus was crucified, they had to appeal to the Romans before they could crucify Jesus. They just couldn't drag him out and stone him. And so they knew that if Jesus said stone her, all of the Roman officials around that would have been listening in, who also <coughs> would have been around because of the, the massive crowds within the temple and, 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 the, and the swelling of Jerusalem, like they would have more soldiers and things like that around, that Jesus would be at risk of being arrested. And if he does nothing, then it would seem like he's condoning her sin. And I love what Jesus does. He's a ninja, right? The dude is just a philosophical ninja. He's in this intense pressure cooker of a moment. And this is what Jesus does. He gets down on a knee, the scripture says. And he starts writing in the ground with his fingers. Like he ignores them. And they don't like it because when you read the text, it says, and they continue to question him. They're like, what's he doing? We gotta ask him more questions. We gotta dig in a little deeper. What's he doing? He's just letting them stew. Now, we don't know what he was writing on the ground. Pastors have speculated. People have speculated. I've heard pastors say things like, you know, on the ground he was writing like the names of the Pharisees, like Jonathan. And then he would write their sin beside it, you know, self-righteous. Mike, adultery, Sam, right? And because you know they're curious, they're there standing there with the stones in their hand and they're looking at, what's he, what's he writing over there, right? And then Jesus stands up and he drops a bomb on their faces, all right? Jesus stands up and he says this. He says, let any one of you without sin be the first to throw a stone. Amen. Let any one of you without sin be the first to throw a stone. Jesus completely dismantles their plan. They had him trapped and now he's got them trapped, right? They bring this woman to expose her sin and what is Jesus doing? Jesus is now exposing their sin. He's saying, don't come here and act like you aren't bringing any brokenness with you. If we tried everybody in this room, everyone would probably be stoned for some reason. And he brings these men into the circle of condemnation that they're trying to bring this woman into. It's amazing. We are often so quick to condemn others because we see our sins as small, smaller than we should. I hear people make this comment all the time. They'll say, don't hate the sinner, hate the sin. I like to say it a little different. I like to say, don't hate the sinner and hate your own sin. That you should hate your own sin more than you hate anybody else's sin. Imagine what that would do to your marriage. If you hated your sin 
more than you hated your spouse's sin. Can I get amen? Even if it's a quiet one. <laughs> right? We have to come to grips with this because when we hate our own sin, it brings this awareness of our brokenness and it helps us give grace. And Jesus gives these men permission to stone this woman, but Jesus does so under the pretense of them coming to grips with their own sin and their own brokenness. Powerful. And Jesus knew what the Mosaic law said as well. In the Mosaic law, it taught that if you bring an accusation against someone, and particularly in adultery, that you had to have evidence of the crime so much so that judges even required that you give them the color of the sheets where the adultery took place. And then Old Testament would teach that the, first, the people who were the accusers, the person who discovered the adultery, was the one that was supposed to cast the first stone. And the reason that they did this was because if it was found out later that that person lied, fabricated the story, then that person would now be guilty and be brought before the family of the one who was executed and the family would execute them. Pretty intense. And so Jesus is flipping it back on these guys and he's like, hey, 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 hey. Y'all are the ones accusing her. You do it. But before you do, think about your own sin. <coughs> and then it says this, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until there was only Jesus left with a woman standing there, right? And so I can imagine these, these, these religious leaders, as Jesus says, you know, he without sin cast the first stone and they're standing there with these stones in their hands ready to go. And I can imagine Jesus' words to them. He without sin cast the first stone. And the older you are, the more you've sinned. <laughs> the more time you've had and the opportunity you've had. And oftentimes, the more grace you sometimes have as well. And it says the older ones to the younger ones started to walk away. And I can just imagine the sounds of the rocks as they kind of slithered away, just dropping on the temple floor as each walked away. Can you imagine the scene? And what this woman must be thinking? It says Jesus straightened up and he asked her, woman, I love this, he gives her dignity. He doesn't call her adulterous woman. He calls her woman, he gives her, he doesn't know her name, woman. Where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. The actual better translation of this, in fact, uh, the NIV translates this, no one, sir. The Greek word there is kurios. Kurios can be translated sir, but it can also be translated lord. And in most translations, they translate it as lord, which most scholars agree is probably the most appropriate translation of that word here in this text. And what she's saying is, no one, lord. She recognizes him for who he is. She recognizes him as the Messiah. And this is the beginning of her redemption. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus said. Now Jesus is alone with her. They're standing there. No one's condemned her. And the only person in the whole group that had a right to condemn this woman was Jesus. Because Jesus was the only person that was in this place that was out sin. Because the Bible teaches us that he was tempted in every way yet without sin. So Jesus is now standing here sinless. He has the right to stone her. And he says, I don't condemn you either. 
I love John 3, 16, the most quoted verse in all the Bible. For, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. But John 3, 17 says this, for the son of man did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And in Christ, Romans chapter eight, verses one would say, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Sometimes we can get this thought about God is that God is this condemning God who's ready to judge us, expose us, smash us when we mess up. And Jesus is going, listen, listen, I don't condemn you. But I want you to notice, Jesus doesn't condemn her, but he also doesn't condone her sin. He says, go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus does not condone her sin. He does not treat it lightly. He addresses it directly. He's like, look, your life needs to change. There's a direction that needs to happen. Something needs to change in this moment for you. I talk to people sometimes and they'll say things like, you know, I mess up, but I know that God's just gonna cover that. And sometimes it feels like church people even use grace as a license to sin, right? Ah, oh, Jesus will just forgive me. But the Bible says godly sorrow leads to repentance. And there's no forgiveness without repentance and there's no repentance without godly sorrow. Where is the brokenness for your sin? I would submit to you that if you're repeatedly using grace as a license to sin, you might wanna question whether you truly know who Jesus is because our grace should not lead us to more sin. Our grace should not lead us to more sin. Grace should lead us to hating sin. He says, go and leave your life of sin. He's not saying, go and earn your salvation. He's saying, the grace that I'm giving you in this moment should make you hate your sin more than anything else that you've ever experienced in your entire life. So what do we do with this? Or yeah, what do we do with this? The first is, judge yourself before, you ju before judging others. In other words, you broke. And God has brought healing but don't forget that. Jesus does not condone the self-righteousness of the religious and he also does not condone the adultery of the woman. Judge yourself. Spend some time with the Lord and asking him to reveal those areas of your life that you need to give over to him. And for some of you, that is your whole life. For some of you, you can identify with adulterous woman because that's where you're at. And maybe it's not adultery that's happening in your life, but you've got so much junk and sin in your life that you just needed to hear today that he's not here to condemn you, but he wants to save you. He's not here to, to throw stones at your brokenness, but he's here to take your brokenness and he's here to put healing and bring healing back to it. The second thing I wanna challenge you to do is this. Drop the rocks. Drop the rocks. Put the rocks down. Some of you have rocks in your hands right now metaphorical rocks in your hands right now and you're ready to throw them at your spouse, your coworkers, your kids, relationships, leaders, your mother-in-law. That one's permissible, but the rest of them, I'm just kidding. <laughs> don't throw it, don't throw it right. JK, LOL. Uh, <laughs> I pray that New Hope would be a rock-dropping church. Because churches without the broken are broken. I just wonder what would happen <coughs> in this scene. I think I know what would happen. I'll close with this. I was, uh, I was at a church in Illinois uh, for several years. And 
It's an amazing church, a church like New Hope, reaching a lot of people who had brokenness in their life. And our pastor would always say things like, man, we're a church where you can come as you are. Just come as you are, man. Just, just come as you are, come as you are, come as you are. So one week, we're, uh, we're in the service. It was on a Sunday night service, and uh, all the services were the same throughout the day. And on the back row of the church, there was this teenage guy sitting on the back row with gym shorts and no shirt. Just chilling on the back row of the church. Now listen, if you came in church this morning and you just saw a section of people with their shirts off, you'd be like, what the heck's going on in this place? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> what happened today, right? And this guy had his shirt off. Next week, come in, back row, same teenager, sitting around the same area with his shirt off. Next week, same teenager, around the same section, but this time, he had his shirt on. So the service let out, comes out into the lobby. We're all standing there. Pastor said, you know, the, the teenager's there with his mom. The pastor says, oh man, I see you decided to wear your shirt today, kind of in jest. And uh, the mom just starts weeping. And she says, you know, he's 16 years old. I've been inviting him to church every single week since he was a little kid but his dad wants nothing to do with church, nothing to do with Jesus. And he says, if daddy doesn't have to go to church, I'm not going to church. But I invite him every week. I sometimes have to work on Sunday morning, so I typically come to the Sunday evening service. And she said, a couple weeks ago, I was leaving to go to the service. He was on the, mowing the yard out in the front, and I said, hey, you wanna come to church with me tonight? He says, I can't, I gotta go take a shower, I'm dirty, I'm sweaty, you know, and he's just mowing his yard with his shirt off. And she says, well, hey, at our church, we say, come as you are. And just being a punk, he was like, all right, I'll go. And he jumps in the car. And she's like, were well, you gonna put on a shirt? He said, you said, come as you we are. She said, come to the church. He sits in the back row. Next week, he's mowing the yard. You gonna come to church? Leaves his shirt off, comes to church. Then next week, he's mowing the yard. Hey, you ready to go to church? You wanna go to church? She said, he takes off running towards the house. She says, where are you going? He says, I'm gonna go get my shirt. She says, you gonna wear your shirt this week? He says, you know, I've been coming to that church every single week and everyone has smiled at me and they've shook my hand and no one has looked at me in a judgmental way and they've loved me and they've showed me respect. So today, I'm gonna show them respect. Amen. His mom's weeping, right? I say all that, <laughs> I say all that to say, man, that's the type of church I wanna be a part of, right? A place where anybody can come, no matter their brokenness, and they can feel at home. They don't feel condemnation and judgmentalism and self-righteousness. Their sin is not condoned. But this is a place, a hospital for the hurting where the broken can find healing. So we're gonna go into this last song, and this song is a song called Known, and I love this because how this woman was known at the beginning of this story is completely different how she was known by Jesus at the end of this story. And Jesus knows you, and he knows everything about you, and he knows all of these failures and sins, and even though you're not on this stage in your slippers, right, he knows everything about you. You were known by him, and he loves you so much that he still chose to die for you even though he knows you. It's amazing. 
And, and, and a part of this song, it says this. It says, I am fully known and loved by you. You won't let go no matter what I do. And it's not one or the other. It's hard truth and ridiculous grace to be known, to be fully, to be known, fully known and loved by you. I am fully known and loved by you. He knows you and he loves you. This morning, church, let's worship him.